Okay, let's go ahead and get started. It's already 10. Rex is passing out the outline for today. So if you get one, that would be great. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing on our study. Lord, thank you again for another day, a Lord's day, where we can come and worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would be glorified and magnified in all that's said and done in our songs and our prayers, in the teaching of God's word, not just this class, but in all the Sunday school classes and the pastor as he brings forth the sermon this morning. Uh, Teach us, uh, convict us, and, and lead us in the way of righteousness and truth for your glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the principle of logic, it's, it's called the law of excluded middle. A thing is either is or it is not. A thing is either it, 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 is, it can be or it is not to be. It is, a line is either straight or it's not straight. You can't have it both ways. There is no middle ground. You cannot have truth and falsehood at the same time. And when that's applied to the Bible, you really come up with a quite a dilemma. Either the Word of God is the inspired Word of God, or it's not the inspired Word of God. If it isn't the Word of God, then it's the manufactured something of human beings, of a man, of, of people. And when it's like that, you have no authority behind it, You have no basis to ground what truth is. And so that puts us in quite a dilemma. Let me give you an example. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to. Most of you know this passage, but I'm going to be reading verses 3 through 8 and then 12 through 20. This is Paul writing. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep in scripture is having died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, As to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And then verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead or that it's already taken place? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ is raised. And if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified that God has raised, him, raised Christ, who he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, think about how many 
relatives and, and people that we love who have died, then if those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished, if Christ hasn't raised, wasn't raised from the dead, if we have faith in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If it isn't true, what a joke Christianity is. But Paul doesn't end there. He gives you verse 22. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Who is the source of inspiration? It is God. The term inspiration is found only one time in the entire New Testament. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The phrase inspiration of God is, is translated by one Greek term. That's the anustos. And it's kind of interesting because it actually means um, God breathed or breathed out by God. The anustos is a compound word. It uses theos, the word for God, and neustos, which means wind or spirit or breath. So we get our English word from, from this. Um, pneumatic, talking about pneumatic uh, air-driven um, equipment, like your dentist. When they start drilling on you, they're pushing on a, a pedal, and it's a pneumatic drill that's, that's uh, going on there. We also get our word pneumonia from this. Pneumonia is a disease of the breath or lungs. <clears throat> the idea isn't that God breathed into scripture his breath, but that he breathed out his word through men, and then they wrote it down. The doctrine probably would be better um, understood instead of the inspiration of God if it was just inspiration of God or spiration of God. And probably better than that is the idea, it's God-breathed. Dr. John Stevenson, interesting guy, he's a, a teaching pastor and a pastor of, of missions at um, the St. Andrew's PCA Church in Hollywood, um, uh, Hollywood, Florida. He was a firefighter rescue guy for 29 years before he got his degrees his master's degree in divinity, and then his doctorate. And he wrote this book. It's called uh, Studies in the Doctrines of the Bible. <clears throat> he says, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time that this word has ever, theanoustos, has ever been used in the Greek language. This means that Paul coined the word himself to describe the work of God producing the scriptures. Paul sometimes used, and he did this in more than one occasion where he puts two words together, and it's, it's new um, uh, by Paul himself. But he does something very similar to that in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, which says, You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Literally, it is you are God-taught. So he, he crams those together as well. He uses the, the Greek word for taught and then God together. In both cases, Paul utilizes compound words so you can understand exactly what he's trying to say. We do that. They're often hyphenated words so we can understand it better. <clears throat> so what's the means of inspiration? What is the vessel? What is the conduit of inspiration? Well, God used men. God uses men. men. First, or Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 
But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, or it's not a matter of one's own interpretation, as NASB says. <clears throat> prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, that same chapter goes like this. For we did not follow cunningly or cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of his majesty. So Paul is saying, listen, we saw this with our, we'll talk about Peter later on, but we saw this with our own eyes. John talks about he touched him. So these are firsthand experiences. 2 Peter 2.21, the apostle uses uh, Prophecy never came by the will of man. It came to men that were men were moved by the Holy Spirit. The uh, ESV is, is pretty good. It says carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word moved is Pharaoh, and it means to bear up like one would carry a burden on their back. It means to carry along. The same word is used as a bird with the wind and the, uh, under its wings and carrying them along. When you see these eagles and whatnot floating out there, they're floating on air, and that's the idea. They're being borne up. They're being lifted up. They're carried along by the wind. Same thing in, in the ship. It's carried along by the ocean, waves and, and stuff. These uh, New Testament writers were chosen by God and carried along by the Holy Spirit to write down exactly what God wanted in his inspired word. They spoke from God, and inspiration is, <clears throat> of Scripture is actually God speaking through his word. So what's a theological definition of inspiration? i got three of them for you. Uh, Norman Geisler and William Nix in their book, uh, A General Introduction to the Bible, says inspiration is that mysterious process by which divine causality worked through human prophets without destroying their individual personalities, their styles, and produce divinely authoritative, inerrant writings. B.B. Warfield, in his famous book, is entitled The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, says, inspiration is that extraordinary supernatural influence, or passively the result of that supernatural influence, exerted by the Holy Spirit on the writers of sacred scripture by which their words were rendered also by the words of God. Another scholar, this is my favorite definition, and you'll see why. God, he says inspiration is God's superintendence of the human authors so that, using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. Which you notice is a few special features in that definition. One, God superintended but did not dictate the material. We'll see later on there are times where he did dictate, uh, but overall it's an oversight. Number two, God used human authors and their own individual styles, personalities, and backgrounds. We kind of saw that when we were talking about the uniqueness of the Bible, right? <clears throat> He used um, 40 different people who wrote the Bible over a 1,600-year period of time, and he used people like shepherds 
and fishermen and uh, tax collectors and on and on and on. He kings and whatnot. <clears throat> so God he, he didn't focus just, it has to be this kind of person and no other kind of person. Nevertheless, as we saw in, in the uniqueness of the Bible, the product was in its original manuscripts without error. So what's the extent? What does it cover? How far does it go? What's the extent of inspiration? One, it includes the very words of Scripture. Every, and, and, and every part of Scripture. Listen how Jesus put it in Matthew 5.18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Three, it specifically refers to the original manuscripts. We'll talk about the original manuscripts and um, when we do the critical uh, textual criticism portion. Number four, it involves inerrancy and infallibility for the original uh, uh, manuscripts. Now, we're going to talk about that, infallibility and, its, and uh, inerrancy next time. And fifthly, this inspiration and infallibility implied to the writers doesn't cover everything they ever said throughout all of history. You know, if uh, um, Peter had burped and said, excuse me, well, that's not inspired, okay? But what inspiration does mean is that every word they wrote down was wrote, written down accurately. I'll give you two examples. Job 1, 8 through 11. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered God, Really? Does, God, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his house, and around all that he has on every side? You blessed the works of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and surely he will curse you to his face. Did Job? Job mumbled. He never cursed God to his face. So Satan's lying again. First time he lied, Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast in the field which the Lord had, uh, God had made. And he said to the woman, this is the serpent speaking, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? See how he snuck that in? No one has said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Not touch it, it's not in there lest you die. God said, don't do it. Then serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die? Contradicting God? For God knows that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Like that's something to, to know. But, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, 
and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband, who also ate. Satan's a liar. He has always been a lie. Not everything that's in Scripture is true, but everything in Scripture is truly recorded. The nature of inspiration. There's a dual authorship to Scripture. God and human authors. There's this divine element. The divine element must be complete in complete control. This divine element, God, uh, is in most cases, the person isn't conscious of what they're writing. There are times where, you know, in Scripture where they, they, they actually are dictated by God. The Ten Commandments were dictated uh, by God. There's also a time where God, and I'll show you, where it says that God wrote Scripture. Exodus twenty four twelve. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written. You may teach them. Exodus 8.19 talks about where the lice had come on the the Egyptians because they were in in bondage. uh, The Israelites were in bondage. And so one of the ten um, uh, plagues was lice. Well, these musician, musicians, <laughs> magicians and soothsayers couldn't get rid of the lice. And they said, oh, man, we can't do this. This must be the finger of God. The whole point is it's God's power that's doing this. In Exodus thirty-one eighteen, and when he had made an end of speaking with him, when God had made an end of speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Deuteronomy 10.9. Then the Lord delivered to me the two tablets written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the, on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. So there is that element where God actually intervened. So let's talk about some of the Uh, inadequate views of inspiration. First, there's the natural inspiration. Some hold that the Bible is simply inspired like any other human genius is inspired. Like Mozart in his music is so inspirational. Or like some of the authors, Mark Twain, uh, Charles Dickens, uh, um, Ernest Hemingway, and for you ladies, Jane Austen. Oh, Yeah, it's inspirational. That doesn't mean it's God-breathed, but they have the misconception that it it is. The reason this is called natural inspiration is because there is absolutely no supernatural dimension to it at all. Then we have the dynamic view of inspiration. This sees the writers of the Bible spirit-filled and guided by the Holy Spirit, just as any believer can be guided God's, by God's Holy Spirit. And this, take that to its logical conclusion. That means anybody can write scripture if you're a spirit-filled Christian. So if that's so, why isn't the Bible getting fatter? It's not so. There's this dictation. This is kind of a caricature of what verbal inspiration is. 
God dictated, and they were like robots. And so they wrote, as God gave them the words, the Lord with the capital L-O-R-D, that kind of thing. That's what's going on with that, that, that dictation nonsense. <clears throat> he simply dictated to them what was going to be written. <clears throat> there were, as we saw, there were times where God actually dictated what he wanted written down. And, you know, like the Ten Commandments we talked about. But this view, this dictation view, eliminates the possibility of God allowing the writers to have their own personalities. Think about this. Why isn't, if if that were true, why isn't every book of the Bible exactly the same? Phrase after phrase after phrase. Not the Lord God said and, and, you know, God said. Why isn't the Lord said and God said? Why is there the difference? And why are these, when you compare the writers, especially of the New Testament, but this applies also to the Old Testament, their personalities came out. When you read the book, the first four Gospels, there may be overlapping of the ideas and the events that are going on there, but they're not exactly the same, especially in the Gospels, because these guys looked at those events differently. There were different Um, emphasis in each one of those four Gospels. And God had him look this way and this way and that way. So the dictation idea just doesn't fit. Then there's a partial inspiration. They're saying certain parts are supernaturally inspired, namely those portions which otherwise wouldn't be known, like creation. I mean, who was there at creation, right, other than God? And, you know, prophecies that were made beforehand that, that, that took place. But the rest of it was unknowable, and it's up for grabs. Then there's a conceptual idea of, of uh, inspiration. <clears throat> and it, it says, only the concepts, not the words, were inspired. This seems to allow a measure of authority without the necessity of the words being actually uh, what God wanted written down. It's the concepts, not the words that are inspired. Similar to that is the one of degree of inspiration. This is kind of an extension of the partial and, and others. But it says that the idea that biblical writers inspired were inspired to a greater degree than others. In, in this aspect, the words of Jesus were more inspired than the words of Paul. Well, tell that to Luther and to um, John Calvin who based a lot of their theology on what they got out of the book of Romans. I mean, it, was, it played a major role in their lives and their conversion. Were they unknowingly led by the spirit of Paul instead of the spirit of the Holy, instead of the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> Robert Schuller actually said this. Wouldn't we be on safer grounds if we looked at our Lord's words to launch the Reformation? The Reformation happened because these guys looked at what God was talking about, justified by faith in the book of Romans. So it's not one more inspired than the other. Then we come to neo-Orthodoxy. And we talked about neo-Orthodoxy in our second lecture, our second class. We said that it, was, it started by two Swiss theologians, 
Karl Barth and Emil Brunner, and they're saying it was right after the First World War where they were totally disenchantized with liberal Protestantism, so they wanted to make their changes. But in this view, and if you'll remember, this view was that it was fallible men wrote fallible records. Well, but, but in that idea, <clears throat> it can become God's word if you get warm fuzzies when you read it. And the full, unique aspect of inspiration is Jesus Christ himself because he's the word. Well, we understand that. That's not, not an issue. And while they will accept the word's teachings of liberalism in, in the Bible, they try to kind of cover it up with a little bit of authority there and that, that it, it's, it's God's word in an infallible way, I mean in an infallible way. Much like the concept idea is the inspired purpose. We have some versions out there that are dynamic, dynamic translations of the scripture. What that means is, here's what I want you to think about. Not the words, but the idea. This is what this is going on here. It simply means why the Bible contains factual errors and insoluble, that means unsolvable discrepancies. Nevertheless, it does have some doctrinal integrity to it. And it will accomplish God's purposes. <clears throat> Those who hold this idea can and do use the word infallibility and inerrant. But the important thing to notice is that they carefully limit the infallibility to main purposes and to main thoughts. They actually do not believe in the full inerrancy and accuracy of God's word. So we come to the orthodox view. What is verbal plenary inspiration? Well, I'll tell you. Verbal comes from the uh, Latin word verba, which means word. Plenary comes from the Latin word Plenus, we get plenitude, plenius from that word, which means full or complete. Just listen how convoluted and confused it has been trying to figure out what inspiration is. To illustrate how times have changed, not many years ago, all one had to say to affirm his belief in the full inspiration of the Bible was that he believed that it was the word of God. Then it became necessary to add the inspired word of God. Later, he had to include the verbally inspired word of God. Then to mean the same thing, he had to say the plenary, that is fully, verbally inspired word of God. Then it became necessary to say the plenary, verbally infallible, inspired word of God. Today, you have to say to mean the same thing, the plenary, I'm going to take a breath. The plenary, verbally, infallible, inspired, inerrant in the original manuscripts, word of God. Gee, what an evolution. And even then, you might not communicate what you're trying to say. What does scripture say about the inspiration of, of God's word? The Old Testament claims the verbal inspiration. Many of the Old Testament writers <coughs> said that their words, <coughs> and they testified that their words were the words of God. 
Note the emphasis in these passages I'm going to read to you, that the words are, in, are used and not just thoughts or concepts. Moses here is arguing with the Lord about going to Israel, down to Egypt to deliver the Israelites out of, out of Egypt. And he says, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord says, who made your tongue? Duh. Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Even Balaam, who turned out to be a false prophet on many occasions in cursing the Israelites, he stated that the word that God puts in my mouth, I must speak. 2 Samuel, this is David speaking, 2 Samuel 23, 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Not going to steal your thunder here in in Jeremiah this morning, Pastor, but in Jeremiah 1, (laughs) in Jeremiah 1, 4 through 9, when God was calling Jeremiah to be, be the prophet, he said, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. That is, he set him apart for a special purpose. I ordained you, appointed him to this office of a a prophet to the nations. Then I said, oh, Lord God. He sounded like Moses. Oh, send somebody else, not me. I can't speak. Oh, Lord God. Hebrew is Yahweh there. Behold, I cannot speak. I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth. For you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put, I love this, then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. That's the authority. Ezekiel 3, verses four, uh, verse 4. <clears throat> then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. The Lord Jesus absolutely knew the verbal insp- plenary inspiration of Scripture. <clears throat> Several passages, he bases his argument on a particular wording. It's going back to <clears throat> Matthew uh, 5, 18 again. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, that is like an iota. Iota is the smallest uh, letter in the Greek uh, alphabet, and, and yod is the smallest in the Hebrew. These smallest letters, not one of them are, are going to pass. For one tit- or one tittle, which is the smallest stroke. It's like getting, do you, any of you remember somebody telling you when you are a kid, mind your P's and Q's? How often kids would reverse that, right, and look at the difference. And I would always tell the kids, listen, your, your cue has, faces the other way and has a little dip at the bottom. Well, that's what this is talking about, just a little dip. It's a little curve on, on a letter and, and changes what it is. Jesus' meaning is the approval of words, even parts of words, and even parts of letters in this verse. That's what he's talking about. Jesus, in a controversy with the Sadducees, stated, 
But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? It's Moses who wrote this down in in Exodus 3. But it was spoken to you by God, Jesus says. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See how the Lord used that and transferred the inspiration from Moses to God. Then in verses 43 and to 45, when he's speaking to the Pharisees this time, he said to them, how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus basing his whole argument on one word, in Psalm 110, verse 1, my Lord. Actually, it's in the Hebrew, it's Lord of me. <clears throat> He's taking just this one word and saying, look how this is, is specifically the way I want it to be. Paul did the same thing in his writings. <clears throat> he believed in verbal inspiration. He... Controversy time. Paul wrote 14 New Testament books. Arguments? I believe he wrote Hebrews. Some of you may not, so that's the 14th. So he wrote this, these many books in New Testament, and he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13, speaking of his own preaching, you'd think this is a little braggadocious, but it isn't. <clears throat> Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. How do we know that? It's in God's word. Which things we also speak, not the words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. See, he sounds like Second Peter Chapter 2, you know, not the words of human beings, not the words of man, but of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, again, Paul referring to his own preaching. For this reason, we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works and you who believe. Not the words of men, but the words of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. We've all been over this in this Galatian passage, especially when Pastor Brett taught on it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Here Paul is taking the singular form of a word, which is taken from Genesis 12 and 13 and 24, and he draws a suitable inference that this form is telling you something. He depends on the number of a single word. Wouldn't that blow your mind if that wasn't plural? I mean, if it wasn't singular? What would that do with that whole seed thing? 
God knows what he's doing when he writes these words. The very words of God are, are inspired. The logic of verbal inspiration would actually be impossible in the Bible if you didn't have the thoughts inspired, but the words weren't. Thoughts inspired, but the words aren't. How does that work? Listen to this. Thoughts are expressed by words, and words deliver thoughts. Duh. If the words are not inspired, then the thoughts also, the thoughts must also be suspect and considered questionable. You remember from our definitions of inspiration, it says, <clears throat> the, one, the one I told you was my favorite, says God's superintendence of human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original manuscripts or auto, autographs. God uses words to express what he's trying to say. This is why we can trust God's word. When we read it, we're reading what God is wants us to say, what he wants to say to us, what he wants us to believe. And that tells us how we need to act. My sisters had a, a situation where they, they left this church. And the part was <clears throat> the, the pastor was preaching too much grace, she said. And she said, my sister, wow, grace, 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 that's great. We believe in grace. But isn't there something else? And her idea was preach the whole word of God. And when you preach the whole word of God, there are changes that God's Holy Spirit makes in our life. Those sins that we once committed, God wants to say, they no longer belong in the life of a believer. Christ should make a difference in our lives. Folks, to tell if somebody is born again, this is a general principle. If there is no change, there is no life because Christ came to change our lives. And he does that through the Holy Spirit by God ministering to us in his word. Well, I'm done for. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about infallibility and inerrancy of, of Scripture. And I have handouts for you. <laughs> I, I told you before what I do with these handouts. They supplement what I want to say. And sometimes, I, you know, I can't say everything about all this. So I've got one, Evidence of Biblical in in Inspiration. That's done by Matt Slick. If you've never been to Matt Slick's um, website, it's really good. He, he was, he's a graduate with an MDiv from Westminster uh, Seminary in California. And he's, he works on apologetics. And so his, his site is CARM. I think it's Christian Answers or something like that to something. I don't remember what it is. But oh, maybe I wrote it in the back here. So I tried to annotate who they came from. Well, I didn't on this one. But Matt Slick, you can look that up. The other one is Josh McDowell. And this one is to what extent is the Bible inspired? He does an excellent job on this one. So... The handouts I'll set in the back in this front pew right there, and you can pick those up. So let's close in prayer. Father God, you are gracious to us just to give us the plan of salvation 
to work it out in time and history in Christ coming to die for our sins, as your word says, to give us new life, to change us, to mature us into Christ's likeness. That is your goal for us. And we pray, Father, that through our study of the word, our trusting in you and your word and apply to our lives, um, you will be glorified. Thank you again for this time, Lord, that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen.